Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Thank you very much for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, thanks for those watching online and those watching the broadcast on C-SPAN. Um, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Dean Sarah Mastillo, who's going to say a few words. Dean Mastillo is the IA O'Shaughnessy Dean of the College of Arts and Letters here at Notre Dame. Sarah? Well, first of all, I'd like to start by thanking you all for being here today. I'd like to welcome our distinguished panelists uh, and any visitors who have joined us today. I'd also like to thank Professor Munoz, the Tocqueville Program, and the Constitutional Studies Program for organizing and sponsoring this event. Yesterday, some of you may have attended the Constitutional Studies Program's lecture on the Federalist Papers. In Federalist Number 10, James Madison says, one of the purposes of representation is to refine and enlarge the public views. That's also one of the purposes of a university a responsibility that we take very seriously here at the University of Notre Dame. The university's mission statement dedicates us to the, to the pursuit and sharing of truth for its own sake, an enterprise that requires and is enriched by scholars of diverse views, perspectives, and religious traditions. I wanted to be here today with you, if only for a few moments, because the College of Arts and Letters seeks to bring together individuals who, through the exchange of ideas, and at times through spirited disagreement, help us think more profoundly about pressing matters of public concern. The aim, as stated in our mission statement, is to create a sense of human solidarity and concern for the common good that will bear fruit as learning becomes service to justice. Our program in constitutional studies is one of the ways the University of Notre Dame attempts to cultivate citizenship. Today's panel, I trust, will help all of us, regardless of our beliefs, to reflect more deeply about the political choices before the nation and our involvement in them. Again, thank you all for being here today, and thank you to Professor Munoz for your leadership of the constitutional studies program. Thank you, Dean Mastillo. Um, um, the program in Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters uh, teaching and research uh, on the fundamental principles of constitutional government with a special concern for the American uh, constitutional tradition. One of the most important things we do is hold conversations of consequence about, uh, as the Dean said, about pressing matters of public concern. And I think today's panel is exactly uh, the type of program uh, we we hope to uh, present to, to the audience here at Notre Dame and indeed to, uh, to those around the world. Uh, a few words about our format. Uh, I've asked each gentleman to uh, speak for about 10 minutes. Uh, we'll start with uh, Mr. French will go first, followed by uh, Mr. Armari and then uh, Professor Kessler. Uh, then we'll have uh, Q&A among the panelists and then Q&A with the with the audience. Uh, I, we do have a microphone here when it's appropriate time. I ask that you'll ask your questions there. Um, and I will insist that you ask a question and keep it short. We have a, a tradition here at the program 
In fact, one of the best parts of the program for me is working with our undergraduate students and our undergraduate fellows always introduce our, our speakers. So it's my pleasure to call to the podium uh, Maggie Garnett. Maggie's a uh, sophomore studying theology and if memory serves me right, a constitutional studies minor. <laughs> Maggie? As Professor Munoz said, my name is Maggie Garnett, and it's my privilege to introduce our three guests today for what I'm confident will be an energized dis discussion and debate. I will start by saying that my order of introduction has no implicit meaning, no tweets necessary. <laughs> um, Sora Bamari is the opinion editor of the New York Post and a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. Previously, he has served as a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal opinion pages in New York and London and as a senior writer at Commentary Magazine. His spiritual memoir, From Fire by Water, about his conversion to Roman Catholicism, was published by Ignatius Press this year. It's our privilege to welcome Mr. Amari to the famed Catholic Disney World here at Notre Dame. <laughs> David French is a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and a contributor to Time Magazine. A best-selling author, his next book, The Great American Divorce, will be published later this year. Mr. French is a graduate of Harvard Law School, the past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and a former lecturer at Cornell Law School. Mr. French is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom and has served as senior counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice and for the Alliance Defending Freedom. Finally, Dr. Charles Kessler is the Dangler Dykema Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. He is also the editor of Claremont Review of Books. A noted scholar of American constitutionalism and the intellectual history of American conservatism, Dr. Kessler is the author of I Am the Change, Barack Obama and the Crisis of Liberalism, and the editor of the Signet Classics edition of the Federalist Papers, the best-selling edition in the country. It is this edition that Professor Munoz wisely assigned to his constitutional studies class that I am taking this fall. As mentioned by Professor Munoz, each gentleman will speak for approximately 10 minutes, followed by discussion, and then Q&A with the audience. Mr. French will speak first, followed by Mr. Amari, and then Professor Kessler. Please join me in welcoming our panelists for our conversation on what is conservatism in the age of Trump. Well, first I want to thank uh, Notre Dame for hosting. This is the second time I've been to Notre Dame. I was uh, debated. Professor Kessler in 2016 in a, in, a, in a really wonderful event, and you guys are fantastic hosts. My only regret is that I cannot go to the game on Saturday to see what football is like outside of the SEC. Um, is it 80% is it as good, 90% is... I just thought I'd go ahead and lose, I just thought I'd go ahead and lose the room right off. Um, I want to thank you for hosting me, and, and this is a, a, a kind of a first for me. This is leg three of my Calvinist tour of Catholic colleges. Uh, I, I was at Georgetown University last week. Uh, what I was told, admonished clearly, was the Catholic University of America the next day, but I understand there's some dissent on that point. Uh, I'm here today, and I'm going to be at Benedictine College in two weeks, so this is a treat for me. Um, what, what is conservatism in the age of Trump? That's, that's the question. Um, I would also like the answer. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, there are competing, conflicting strains of conservatism in the age of Trump, and I'm just going to go ahead and take it as an omen 
that to open this program, um, we read from Federalist 10, which is my favorite Federalist, Federalist paper. But then even as I say that, I realize that I have no life if I have a favorite Federalist paper. Um, so what is conservatism in the age of Trump? Well, let me back up and uh, let me say, what is sort of uh, the strand of conservatism to which I have belonged that still exists in the age of Trump? Uh, and, and I will define it like this. Um, I take two quotes from two of the founding frenemies, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. One of them is, ex both of them are extremely famous. One is more famous than the other. One of them is, of course, the words from the Declaration of Independence, that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He goes on to explain that governments are instituted among men to secure these liberties. It's a principal purpose of government, not the only purpose, not the only purpose by any stretch, but the principal purpose of government to secure these liberties. Writing years later, after the Constitution was, uh, was drafted and ratified, John Adams says in a letter to the Massachusetts militia something very interesting. He says, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And that's the famous quote, but what he also goes on to say and describe was a constitutional structure that was too weak to deal with widespread vice. In other words, the level of liberty in our culture uh, was so great that if that was all exercised in a libertine way, that America would be an unfit habitation. And so what essentially happens is you've created two reciprocal, non-delegable responsibilities that are at the foundation of this republic. There is a non-delegable duty of the government of the United States of America to defend liberty, to protect the liberty of its citizens. Madison in Federalist 10 uses the word oxygen, as I remember correctly, to describe uh, the role of liberty in the American Republic. That's how essential it is. At the same time, it won't work. This won't work unless the people have a reciprocal commitment to exercise that liberty for virtuous ends. Now, we're all fallen people. We're not all, always going to do that perfectly. And in fact, the Founding Fathers knew that, so they built in all kinds of checks and balances running vertically and horizontally within the federal system and with regard to the states so that no one set of bad people could wreck this place, uh, that we, were, we had internal resilience. And I think that was an incredibly wise way to build this country. And it was wise in ways that really, really echo today, because I want to fast forward from 1791 to 2019. What do we find ourselves with facing right now in the United States of America? Well, a lot of people would say, well, what we face is a horrible left. And then there are other people in this room and say, wait a minute, what we face is a horrible right. And I have my own views about the merits of many of these conflicts, and we'll explain them as we go. But one thing that I think we can all agree on is we face a tremendously negatively polarized country. What negative polarization means is that I have less affection for my own side than I have hatred for the other side. So for example, even in the Obama era, we can't say negative polarization began with Trump. It didn't, not even close. It's been arcing upwards for a long time. If you polled the average Republican, what would their opinion was of a Democrat, 82% would say they strongly or somewhat dislike a Democrat, 82%. If you polled the average Democrat, did they strongly or somewhat dislike Republicans, they were far more tolerant, 78% hated the average Republican. 
So we have an incredibly divided country. We have an enormous amount of animosity. And one of the things that I look at, and as I look at this country, I think it is a time in our country to rediscover the wisdom of the founders in this sense. One, we like to exaggerate their uniformity. We apply modern standards of diversity to the founders of this country. And we say, well, they're all land-holding white men. In other words, they're like sort of like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They're just the same thing. We're so much more diverse now. But if you run down the eastern seaboard of the United States of America in 1791, what you will see is a Puritan Massachusetts, a Rhode Island founded by people fleeing from Puritan Massachusetts, You're going to see a heavily Quaker Pennsylvania. You're going to see a heavily Catholic Maryland. You're going to see a heavily Anglican Virginia. You're going to see a heavily criminal Georgia. And some things haven't changed. And and, uh, and what do you have there? You have, in many ways, many of the the, the combatants of the wars of religion that tore apart Europe not too long before. How do you knit that thing together? How do you do it? Well, you do it by giving people the liberty to think, to express, and to act according to their deepest beliefs. When you remove the threat to their deepest beliefs from the table, that we can start to begin to build a republic together. That was one of the foundational why, that's some of the foundational wisdom of the First Amendment. What was another way you knit that kind of different and diverse community together? By giving them more autonomy by giving them more control and over their lives and the ability to self-govern. So what I would say is, what is the project of the conservative movement now? One of the things, one of our most, one of our urgent projects is to diffuse negative polarization, to diffuse the forces that are tearing this nation to shreds. How do you do that? Well, you do that by reconnecting with the wisdom of the founders. You do that by granting people the rights that you would like to exercise yourself and defending those rights. What do you do about the fact that there's differing communities in the United States who have strongly different views about how to govern themselves? Well, one of the things you do is you let let them govern themselves. And one of the things that you also do is you try to ameliorate the tragedies and the consequences of the departures that we have had in this country from that constitutional wisdom. I mean, that, that and, and the embraces that we've made of big government and coercion that have hurt so many lives. And what that looks like in, in, in specific policies, I'd probably agree with Sorab on a number of policy changes that I would like to see. Uh, I, I think the tax, um, the tax cuts, for example, are too heavily weighted towards corporations. I'm really open to ideas about family leave, about things that can, kind of, that can start to repair some of the damage the government has done. And in that circumstance, I think there's a lot to talk about. But what I do not think that we should do is abandon this concept of non-delegable reciprocal duties. The government protects liberty. The people exercise liberty virtuously. And now I'll end with this. This puts a special burden on conservatives. It really does. I've long considered that conservatives who say, will say, I don't think government can fix everything for everybody everywhere, or even that government can be awful and far more harmful, do more harm than good, puts a special burden on me to be salt and light in my community, to walk my talk, to serve the least of these, to be part of an energetic community that is remaking the culture from the ground up. And if we change that and we try to remake culture from the top down, we will not only fail, we will further divide this country.
Well, I want to uh, start by thanking uh, Notre Dame and Professor Munoz for organizing this and all of you for uh, coming to this important debate. Um, I heard about planes, private planes landing, and I saw people selling tickets, and then I was informed that that's for the football game and not for this event. <laughs> this, is, this is my first time at Notre Dame, which is a place that's special to me because the, uh, the priest who presided over uh, uh, the sacraments when I was received into the church was not, uh, he was an oratorian. But there was another priest present who was, in fact, a, a member of the Congregation of the Holy Cross and closely connected with Notre Dame. So it's really special to finally be here uh, at Our Lady's Own University. Um, let me start by just saying that this is broadly a debate between social conservatives, American social conservatives. And as an American social conservative, I have the utmost respect for the men and women who defend our liberties, in the, uh, religious liberties in the courtroom, and the men and women who defend a nation by wearing the uniform abroad. And you, David, check off both of those boxes. I thanked you at the beginning of our last uh, debate uh, for both of those things. I meant it, and I want to thank you again for, the, for both of those things. Uh, even in the notorious now essay that set off this debate, I noted that um, David French has devoted a considerable and uh, long part of his career to defending, especially conservative Christians, coercively squeezed out of the public square. And again, I meant that. Nevertheless, we have profound disagreements. Um, I and I would say a, a cohort of other young, mainly young conservatives, have a desire to renegotiate some elements of the conservative program. In my case, the impetus for that is an immigrant's love for his adoptive homeland. Um, uh, I, I recall often the, the line from Michel Welbeck's novel, Soumission, where he's imagining a France that's gone, uh, is basically a dystopian future of France, not too far off in the future. And the protagonist is this professor, and he has a, he has a Jewish girlfriend. And as things begin to go south, you know, she says, well, I'm going to make Aliyah. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Israel. And he says, hmm. I don't have an Israel. This is it for me, France. And in my case, that's true. I mean, I've left my homeland. There's no returning to, to the Iran of the Ayatollahs for me. So I deeply care about this country. Um, and I have the anxious love of a father for my son. Oh, now I should say my children. Because <laughs> last week we were joined by my daughter. Um, uh, and, <laughs> and, and the bottom line is that when I think about the America that my children will inherit, you know, despite being an aspirational immigrant and to whom America has done wonderful things, for whom America has done wonderful things, I nevertheless, I mostly just feel anxiety. I feel anxious about the vulgar culture into which they'll grow up. I feel anxious about the sort of ideological indoctrination into ever more exotic ideas that even five years ago most people would have thought are, are nonsensical. And the broader kind of cultural breakdown, the opioid crisis, the fact that so many young men stay home and, and play video games, the porno this massive pornographization of the culture. Um, so those, that, those are my impetus, and that they lead to some strategic disagreements, beginning with our, you know, my sense of how deep the crisis goes and how I would say consensus conservatives say that how deep the crisis goes. Um, you know, when I see certain events where children are interacting with licentious behavior, I don't see that as, quote unquote, the blessings of liberty that our founders had in mind. Uh, I see license which they abhorred and which they carefully distinguished from liberty. Um, and that, 
that assessment of how deep the crisis goes also leads me to some strategic disagreements about how to move forward, or at least a sense that the consensus conservatives has in some ways failed. Uh, two reasons, mainly. One is the battleground has shifted and consensus conservatism hasn't kept up. Um, for two generations, both left and right in this country have pursued deregulation. For uh, the right, that's been economic deregulation. For the left, it's been moral and sexual deregulation. And the result is that our people are vulnerable. I cited the crises that we feel. And in some ways, the Trump phenomenon itself is a, is a symptom of those crises. Um, and it's especially led to the rise of the woke corporation, the, uh, private actors who are no longer, it's not the typical subject against which consensus conservatism defended traditionalist and uh, cultural actors because they're not from the state. They're private actors. Um, and the cases often don't ever reach a courtroom for that kind of traditional religious liberty litigation. They happen within a matter of hours where someone says something and a private actor essentially destroys their lives for what they had said. So, for example, if Maria Lopez has to kiss the ring of, of, of woke sexual revolutionaries for having dared to say maybe a three-year-old shouldn't be begun to transition at that age, or if Drew Brees has to apologize and distance himself from focus on the family just because he participated in uh, 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 Bring Your Bible to School Day, then something is wrong, and those, the typical uh, litigation answer doesn't meet that challenge. Um, it, in part, it's because consensus conservatism has a rigid public-private distinction, where, in fact, some of these big social media companies act now like company towns. That's where free speech either happens or not. That's where religious liberty either happens or not. And that distinction is, it keeps us in trouble. And we also have just too much kind of respect for market autonomy as a good in itself. And that leads me to the second critique of consensus conservatism. Um, and, it, and it's this, that it's mainly a defensive procedural posture. Now, the woke sexual revolutionary left has a substantive vision of the highest good. And they seek to systematically impose it at every level, on campus at the university, in the corporation, in the workplace, in the law, in politics. And we as conservatives often meet them with procedural answers. We say, well, for example, on campus typically, the campus conservative is typically like, just give me the right to talk. I want to tell you about how good procedures are. And that's sort of unsatisfying. You see the substance procedure mismatch there. We don't offer a vision of the good. Um, now, the consensus conservatives would say, well, that's the th system that we inherited from the founders. They just wanted to create neutral rules from which, you know, whatever worldview pre prevails, that's fine. But I don't think that's the case. Our Constitution's preamble says this document is aimed to secure justice, which is a substantive thing. Aims to secure the general welfare, which under the best gloss is the common good as Catholics understand it. So it's not a neutral document. Uh, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't authorize license. Our quote from, from Chancellor James Kent, writing in 1811, our constitution was not intended to justify acts of licentiousness. That view has held until relatively recently. So we need to advance a, a moral vision of the good that, that meets people where they are with the challenges we have today. And we can't do that if we insist on autonomy in every sphere for its own sake. If we treat things that are licensed as, as allowed under a, a morally neutral regime, 
We can't turn neutrality itself into a high principle. That's poison to a constitutional order that's premised on man's inalienable rights, on his dignity as, as a creature made in the imago Dei, in the image of God. So if we say that our constitution has a, has a neutral fundament, you chip away at that fundament. And we certainly, and this is my last point, we certainly can't allow liberals, and I mean that in the broad sense, to undo voters' demands that are, that are now being expressed, not just here in the United States, but across the developed world, where people want a politics of the good, of the common good, as imperfectly and inchoately as conservative nationalist movements around the world are expressing that, that desire. So uh, we have to resist future Mueller probes, and I'm afraid that too often consensus conservatives haven't done that. They've joined liberals in seeking to undo the uh, outcome of elections by various procedural means, let's say. Look, I don't have all the answers to these problems, and I realize that wherever you are presenting the new vision of conservatism, you'll be met with a, a vision that's well-established. And the reason it's well-established is because it's worked for a long time, and it does, has served some goods. Um, nevertheless, I think that we have to, again, go back to this idea of promoting a non-neutral vision. We stand for a vision of the good, and it applies across life's realm, including at the level of the state. Our state should not be neutral. And that often will mean nowadays by trying to re-erect barriers that were heedlessly destroyed over the past two generations. And whatever our disagreements, I'm sure David will agree that the most fundamental limit of all is that man is, man's destiny is in the hand of his creator. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, to see my old friend Phil Munoz uh, and many other um, old and new friends uh, here today. I started uh, my trip here uh, yesterday in St. Louis where my uh, van driver taking me from the uh, hotel to the airport asked me where I was going and I said I was going to Notre Dame. And he said, ah, um, they have a lot of teams. <laughs> and I said, yes, yeah, very famous, you know, football teams and so forth. Uh, uh, and uh, my driver said, is it Ivy League? <laughs> and I said, no, it's Catholic, actually. <laughs> um, Uh, I therefore will tell a joke about an Irishman, uh, uh, but uh, it's a joke that R Ronald Reagan told, so it's okay. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, an Irishman finds himself uh, in a bar, and suddenly a fight breaks out, you know, a sort of t TV fight, people breaking chairs over heads and things, and the Irishman asks the bartender, is this a private fight? or can anyone join in? <laughs> so I'm, I, I feel a little bit like I'm coming in the middle of this private fight that's, uh, uh, that's going on, but in, the, but in the spirit of the fighting Irish, I will join in. Um, but I, I wanted to start by saying something about Trump, since this is supposed to be a discussion, it will be a discussion about conservatism in the age of uh, Donald Trump. Um, there's never been a president like Donald Trump, uh, for good or ill. Um, but the situation conservatives find themselves in is not so unprecedented. Uh, 
In many ways, the situation um, conservatives find themselves in today re resembles that in the 1950s when Bill Buckley was founding National Review in 1955 and when the conservative movement was just beginning. We've sort of forgotten that one of the major crusades of the conservative movement in its origins, say from 1955 uh, for the next uh, uh, half decade, was uh, a, a concentrated attack on Dwight Eisenhower and the so-called new republicanism that um, drove his administration as president. Uh, when B Bill Buckley in the magazine and other people in the magazine attacked what they called the, the age of modulation, uh, meaning the age of moderation in which the uh, GOP under Eisenhower had breezily accepted almost everything in the New Deal and were treating world communism as a non-urgent or garden variety political problem. Buckley and the early conservatives were worried that there was no sense of crisis on the Republican, on the standard Republican right. That, that there was no sense that the, um, the fate of the country and the world morally and politically was intimately involved in what was going to happen in the next couple of years. To me, so when Bill Buckley, when the magazine endorsed uh, Eisenhower's re-election in 1956, the official slogan of the re-election campaign was, I like Ike. And National Review's version of that was, I prefer Ike. <laughs> and I think that's um, an attitude that uh, many conservatives today would recognize as they have uh, warmed to the example of President Trump. Um, he's, he's preferable to the alternative to Trump, which was a continuation of, you might say, the, the age of Bush, the, the Bush era of conservatism and republicanism, which stretched from George Herbert Walker Bush right after Reagan through George W. and would have included Jeb Bush or could have included Jeb Bush if Donald Trump had not famously come down that escalator uh, in Trump Tower. Uh, there was a sense uh, widespread among conservatives that the mainstream of the movement and of the Republican Party had become interested simply in running the machinery of government as it was. That it lacked a sense of an accelerating moral crisis, of the moral dissolution um, of American society and of a certain kind of constitutional decay because the Constitution is not very healthy right now. And one of the things conservatism has to do is come to the rescue of our own Constitution, I think. Um, that's why the, one of the unifying factors among the conservatives who endorsed uh, Donald Trump was that this was an emergency, that this was a, a, a crisis in our politics. The, mo the single most famous essay, the Flight 93 essay by the remarkable Michael Anton um, in favor of Trump and calling for the election of Trump, sounded exactly that note of emergency, that this is not just another election and that the stakes are very high in, uh, in, this, in the Trump election between Trump and Hillary. Um, now, um, 
second point I'd like to make really is that the Trump policy agenda is not unprecedented or uncalled for either. In some ways, what the Trump administration has been pursuing is a return to the Republican norm after a long interruption for the Second World War and the Cold War and its aftermath. If you look back to the historic Republican Party from uh, Abraham Lincoln to William McKinley to Herbert Hoover, um, you'll see an agenda that is very familiar uh, when compared to President Trump's agenda. Here are the five biggest uh, principles, there are others, um, of comparison. First, protectionism. Through all those years, the, Republic, the Republican Party was the party of high tariffs. Um, Trump's protectionism is in a way a return to that policy. Why protectionism? For two reasons. To enable the working class to live a prosperous and healthy life. Uh, to protect them from essentially what we would now call third world standards of globalized competition. That was the GOP's argument in those years too. Conjoined with an argument for the protection of critical industries, either from a national security point of view or simply from an economic development point of view. So Trump's fight with the Chinese, uh, uh, the Huawei Corporation, 5G and so forth, a very familiar old-fashioned Republican theme. Secondly, second issue, immigration. The Republican Party was in favor of immigration through those years, but they were concerned to keep the levels of immigration to what uh, to the numbers that could be assimilated or Americanized. Um, it was possible, they thought then, to have too much diversity and to have it too fast. And even liberal social scientists today, like Yasha Malk at Harvard or, or uh, Bob Putnam at Harvard, have to admit that that is true. Um, it is possible, diversity can be a, a good for a liberal democracy, but too much diversity can be an, uh, a problem for liberal democracy because people need to be able to identify with one another and trust one another, and it may take time for those kinds of friendly ties to develop between people who are very different in their backgrounds, customs, and so forth from each other. Third, the old Republican Party had a much more modest view of foreign policy. Um, its view was that we should pursue the national interest guided by justice, um, but they were not heavily invested at all in the idea of exporting democracy or of um, uh, democratizing parts of the world uh, which were very resistant to that trend. Teddy Roosevelt's famous slogan was, speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, that's not exactly John Bolton's program. Um, <laughs> or even Donald Trump's program, but I think it's where the party and the movement, uh, in a way, are heading. And of course, one has to say that America's strategic position is very different today than it was in the late 19th century or the early 20th century, and so here there will have to be some, I think, real changes or accommodations. The final two principles, lower taxes, uh, Calvin Coolidge, one of the most famous achievements of his presidency was a comprehensive lowering of income tax rates, Reaganomics, um, avant la lettre, as it were. And finally, judges willing to defend constitutional limitations on uh, legislatures and regulators. 
In all these respects, I think, Trump's policies are a return to normalcy, as Warren Harding would have said, um, at least Republican style. Of course, on the question of style, Trump's is unique, um, problematic, often counterproductive. Um, and almost anyone who defends Trump, I think, has to make some concessions and excuses on that front. I, I'll mention only one word, Twitter. <laughs> but partly, uh, the, the constrained style, um, or the, the, the limited, the strange style, in a way, that Donald Trump exhibits is an evolutionary adaptation to a, an unprecedentedly hostile political environment in which he finds himself. It's not just the Russia investigation, um, political correctness in general, uh, the charges of racism easily tossed around in American politics uh, today, but it's the establishment that he's up against. Establishment is an old conservative word. It can be a good thing or a bad thing, but in this case, the liberal establishment is increasingly radical and increasingly powerful on campuses and in our politics, uh, and he is in a very, very difficult uh, position uh, as a president. I mean, really, no president has been under the kind of internal investigation he's been under from the very beginning of his term, of his first term. Um, it's almost unprecedented. I mean, the, it, it, obviously, Lincoln, in the beginning of his first term, was not under investigation, but he was under intense pressure, assassination, plots, and so forth were rumbling. Um, so, uh, but really, uh, the situation that um, Trump has been in, in which many of the people in his own administration have been investigating him and resisting and rebelling against his own policy efforts, um, has made life very difficult for him and has made his reaction, his response, more uh, Pavlovian, perhaps, than would otherwise um, uh, have been. Uh, that's why, looking at this from a certain historical perspective, I think the, the changes in policy will likely last. That will be a legacy of Trump for the conservative movement and the Republican Party to some extent. Um, the style uh, probably will be less um, repeated. I think the style is going to be um, confined mostly to this administration and to this unusual president. Thanks. David, can I pose a question to you? Yes. Uh, both Professor Kessler um, uh, used the phrase uh, constitutional crisis and Straub used the phrase uh, uh, moral crisis. Um, I don't think you used the word crisis. Right. Uh, do you agree that we're in uh, some sort of cultural or, const or and constitutional crisis? Uh, you know, there are two, two things that I write that get the most negative reaction. One is if I say write against Donald Trump, and the other one is if I say we have a challenge, not a crisis. Um, there is an enormous, especially amongst people who are very intensely committed partisans, there is a, a sense of, uh, of absolutely a sense of crisis. And there are things that are very troubling and challenging. One thing that Sora mentioned was the deaths of despair. That is something that every American 
every American should have front and center in their mind is the fact that in, well, not every community, but certainly the community I lived in for the last 12 years before I, I moved just last year to a national suburb, but then the rural Tennessee community I lived in, first meth, then um, opioids, horrifying, horrifying what's happening in those communities. Uh, the problem that I have with the words like unprecedented or words like crisis um, is they often smooth away a lot of the rest of American history and discard a lot of the lessons that we learn from the rest of American history and how to deal with challenges. Professor Kessler used the word unprecedented to describe the opposition Trump had. It's not unprecedented. It's not even close to unprecedented. Lincoln's inauguration wasn't just initiated with, after Lincoln's inauguration, there wasn't just assassination plots. There was a cannonade on Fort Sumter and the largest uh, military, most deadly military conflict in the history of the United States. Um, in the 19, 1969, y'all, some of you remember this, some of you don't. Year of my birth, 1969. How many domestic terror bombings were there per day on average in the U.S.? Four. Four domestic terror bombings per day. If you want to talk about cultural challenges and cultural crises, in the late 1980s and moving into the late 1970s and the early 1980s, the abortion rate in this country was skyrocketing, as was the rate of uh, violence and um, violent crime. Rapes through the roof, murder through the roof, abortion through the roof. Some of you remember popular movies of the day. They would cast uh, cities as these dystopian, this dystopian future. I mean, some of you maybe even recently streamed on Netflix some, a movie called Escape from New York, where Manhattan was going to be a penal colony. That's how bad things were getting. In the Dinkins era, more than 2,000 people murdered in New York City. More than 2,000. At the same time that that's happening, the Warren court had obliterated the proper reading of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. The First Amendment, although strong in some areas, was under siege in other areas. We're talking about a situation that was very, very serious. How did we respond to many of these challenges? Well, one of the things that happened with the crime rate is was a massive response from civic leaders, religious leaders, National political leaders, local leaders, Rudy Giuliani, it's a battle. Is his finest hour 9-11? Or is his finest hour the way in which he, as a local leader, actually helped New York's crime rate so much that it dropped the national crime rate? I was there when all this stuff happened. So you look at these challenges in American history, and what you begin to see is when we have these massive challenges, one of the things, an increase in liberty, and the energy of local governments to make decisions and to reach and an increase in the energy and the vitality of local governments, the increase in the energy and the vitality of our churches, the, the, the response of the American people to respond with hope rather than panic. Panic is its own enemy here. It leads to terrible decision-making. It leads to bad decisions all the time, and it leads to moral compromises. You know, one of the things that I have seen is that American Christians in particular, we're very concerned about a culture that lies too much. We're very concerned about a culture that discards marriage vows. We're very concerned about a culture that is, uh, embraces porn. We're very concerned about drag. I mean, if you follow Twitter, that's half of Twitter sometimes on the conservative side, it seems. 
And so what do we do? What do we do when we're concerned about lies and adultery and porn and drag? We turn to a guy who lies, who's committed serial adultery with porn stars, appeared in soft poor porn movies, and even a video of drag where he buried his face into Rudy Giuliani's fake bosoms. Actually, that happened. Look it up. And so one of the things that we have is an issue where if, if as I said to the begin, from the beginning, America depends on two things. It depends on a government that respects and protects liberty. It depends on a citizenry that is oriented towards the good and towards virtue. A political party or a political system that undermines one of those, even ostensibly for the sake of the other, is dangerous. Sure. Since um, David mentioned New York City, I happen to observe the city and its politics uh, and its conditions. Um, daily at the New York Post, the paper founded by um, my favorite founder, uh, Alexander Hamilton. And look, uh, I, I agree with David that things were very bad in the New York of the 1970s and 80s and then edging into the early 90s and then the turnaround under Commissioner Bratton and, and Mayor uh, Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg in many ways consolidated those, those gains. But I would say that um, the sense of crisis is building up. And uh, so, for example, although major crimes in New York aren't up yet, luckily, because as, as much pressure as it's under, the NYPD continues to do its best to do broken windows policing, lifestyle crimes are back. L lifestyle crimes in terms of anywhere you go, you know, there's, there's someone high or aggressive on the subway or on the streets. The, the number of homeless on the streets, often mentally ill and offer, often addicted to opioids. Um, so these types of crises, and you, you can see parallels in rural communities, even though New York, Manhattan, let's say, is very different from, from rural Tennessee, but you see the parallels of the same crises. They require a politics of order and protection. And I would say that often uh, the consensus conservatism that I've been critiquing is only in the liberation gear. It's only in the autonomy gear. So for example, right now, Look, we can get into the substance of the debate whether marijuana should be legalized, but it's interesting to me that more or less everyone's made its peace with it uh, on, the, on the left and right, and so the disagreement is no longer, hey, should we demolish one last barrier uh, that is standing? No, it's the, the right will say, well, if we are going to uh, legalize marijuana, we better uh, let the market pr uh, distribute the proceeds. Whereas the left will say, well, no, the, f the war on drug uh, hurt certain communities in the past, so we should uh, give those communities licensing preferences so they can benefit more from legalization. But neither party is saying, wait, is, you know, is this drug that uh, we know does kind of create psychotic episodes sometimes and, and keeps especially young men and women's minds sort of boggled all the time? Do we want it just being... Deregulated, that has sort of been taken off the table. Or the homeless crisis in New York. What people don't understand is it's primarily a, uh, a mental health crisis. And why did that happen? It's because of the politics of autonomy, again, that arose in the 1950s and 60s. Because state mental health institutions used to be, yes, some of them there were abuses. But then both left and right began to open up the mental health institutions in the name of autonomy for the mentally ill, right? So we, can't, we have very hard, law, hard barriers to, to overcome if we want to involuntarily commit people, again, in the name of autonomy. And we've, we've gotten rid of hospital beds. And both the left and right have agreed for different reasons. On the right, 
it's been sold as, well, it's uh, a fiscal restraint and, and we get to spend less and community programs and inclusive programs are cheaper. And on the left, again, it's about autonomy of the individual. Uh, you know, we can't tell people uh, they got, they've got to be committed. So you see how these, these two kind of pincer movement of left and right in these urban issues that David raised go back to the politics of autonomy. And do we have room in our politics now for a politics of, of consolidation, including national consolidation, a politics of order, a politics of cohesion? And it seems like we do. We have a politics of that kind in a very inchoate way from President Trump when he, for example, raises some questions about unrestrained free trade when he raises questions about unrestrained mass migration. And he recognizes some of these crises. Again, in his, as, as Professor Kessler said, yes, he's, he's vulgar, but some in, instinctive way, he recognizes that the nation wants protection and order now. Yeah. No, I would say, uh, I wanted to say um, uh, to David's point, um, it's true. I mean, in many ways, we're still living in the 60s. Uh, I mean, the, it, you know, we still talk about the 60s as though we're still here. Uh, and we're still coming to grips with that uh, um, amazing uh, decade. But politically, we were much more united in the 60s and the 70s, despite the number of bombings, despite uh, the other things you can, uh, you can adduce. Uh, LBJ won election in 1964 with um, more than 60% of the vote. Richard Nixon won re-election in 1972 with even more of uh, the vote. Uh, This was not an era where the, as you say, the negative polarization was as deep as it is now. Um, And as you also say, Donald Trump didn't create that negative polarization. He is, in a way, trying to deal with it, uh, but as... um, Uh, as sometimes happens in politics, you can't deal with it by denying it. You may have to deal with it by confronting it and trying to shape a new majority, which would be a slightly different kind of conservative majority, I think somewhat more along the lines that Saurabh is uh, calling for. I wanted to turn our attention to. So Saurabh, paraphrasing here, called, uh, we need to advance a moral vision of the good and openness to state power. Right, and maybe I'll anticipate David's response. Given that uh, we're in a moment of a moral crisis, uh, why wouldn't the reaction be to a moral crisis, we need to reduce state power? How are you going to have, if we're in crisis, how's the state going to advance a moral vision that's healthy? Well, because we've met a lot of our challenges by by state power. Um, I'll take an example where David and I squarely disagree. Um, as I said, I'm raising young children right now, and I'm deeply worried about uh, their addiction to screens. Um, this is something a lot of parents have on their, have on their minds. Uh, the way, set aside pornography, which is there, and as I said at our last debate, uh, my son, again, statistically, is likely to encounter hardcore pornography before he hits puberty. Now, I'm going to do my damnedest to prevent that, but I, the, the civilization we've built in the name of autonomy ha- makes that very difficult. It's, it, you know, it, right, it's true that as a, as a Christian, we have to accept that some seed will fall on thorns. But we shouldn't build a garden of thorns and thistles and then expect people to maintain the integrity of their faith and morals. 
Um, so talk about addic- addiction to screens. Uh, you know, Senator Josh Hawley recently introduced some legislation to try to curb that with some regulatory measures, right? Um, so, for example, to reduce the kind of infinite uh, refresh that you get from social media that keeps you addicted and, and won't... Even now, I found myself, I couldn't kind of... While some of my colleagues were talking, I was like, what, what are people saying on Twitter about this? So I, I, <laughs> I'm guilty of it as much as anyone. Uh, to, you know, making sure that videos don't start right away and so forth. Now, I don't know if Holly's measures are the way to do it. We should study them. But at least he's trying to say, here's a real crisis, and we met, for example, uh, uh, addiction to cigarettes with government action. We met addiction to alcohol as best we can with government action. Not that it stopped me from smoking, but the the point is that uh, at least let's try to explore it, whereas the consensus right, what it'll do is say, no, 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 that's, that's daddy statism. That's Republican daddy statism. We can't go there. Uh, you know, if the company wants to make its products attractive, so be it. Well, that's, that's how we create a civilization. Like I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a garden of thorns and thistles. And then we wonder why we have, you know, 50% of marriages fail. People are distracted, including by pornography. Why, why uh, you know, we have this deaths of despair where people are just lonely and so forth. So government has a role to play to protect us. It always has. So, yeah, I'm familiar with the Josh Hawley uh, legislation. It does, among other things, it bans infinite scroll, which is where you uh, scroll up on Instagram. It uh, stops you from having a Snapchat streak. Um, It prevents YouTube from... uh, It would prevent YouTube from starting another video immediately. As if we haven't been dealing with the ultimate autoplay device for the last 60 years, which is the actual television you have. Um, I don't know. I'm wondering what he's going to do about my son's time on Fortnite. I'm wondering about Call of Duty. I'm thinking about Discord. What about GroupMe? Google Docs are a real issue amongst young people these days. Look, there is no substitute at the end of the day for human beings exercising responsibility. And the moment that we begin to look at the government and we say, I'm having trouble with my son on social media, Senator Hawley, what you got for me, is a moment that we're beginning to fail seriously as a people. And what we have, we have a track record in this country. Again, I'm not going to say that every government intervention has been bad. There have been good government inter- interventions. I'm going to say that we should have a very healthy skepticism about their wisdom. We were just reminded of this yesterday, of the wisdom of Ronald Reagan's statement, that nine of the worst words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. We had this announcement of a ban on vaping, of flavored vaping. Okay, you know, I don't like vaping, but also on the basis of there's this cultural panic right now. It's a result of some people have tragically died because they've purchased illegal vapes. I'm not a, I don't know the lingo super well on this, so bear with me. But there are lots of people who have been weaning themselves off of cigarettes through these means. Now, are we going to kill more people by banning the method in which they've been weaning themselves off the most dangerous product because we just had a a moral panic about something that isn't even truly targeted by this ban? That's how the government so often tends to work. We have had a war on poverty in this country where some of the brightest and most well-meaning people in the world have been spending trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars to address long-term poverty. And what's happened, often they've exacerbated it. 
We've had well-meaning people who have spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to reform an education system that still fails so thoroughly that one of the greatest benefits of the conservative movement over the last 20 to 30 years is liberating now up to 5 million kids a year, starting from a whopping zero, almost 5 million kids a year from the public school monopoly that is failing them so badly. And so we're, we're talking about a system where when I hear order matters, whose order, what policy, if you're going to enhance the power of the state to deprive me of autonomy, who's going to be at the levers of power of Josh Hawley's Internet Censorship uh, Commission after President Trump is gone? Is it going to be President Elizabeth Warren running the Internet Censorship Commission? That's a bad thought to me. If we increase the level of public order in this life so that we can get rid of groups that we don't like from public spaces, I guarantee you we're going to have thousands and thousands of groups that we do like banned from public spaces. All of these things have consequences when exercised by people on the other side. One of the first things you should think about when you think about a policy is, how will this play if my political opponents have this power? It's one of the first things that you should think about. Another thing I want to talk about We've talked about marijuana. It is important for us to consider issues in full. We have a problem with a huge problem with family formation in in the ranks of poor and working class Americans. One of the big issues with family formation is the lack of marriageable men in part due to mass incarceration. We have to think really, really hard about can we deal with mass incarceration now that the crime rate is less than half of what it was, the murder rate, the rate of violent crime is plummeting. When we're living in a future that in 1990, if I described it to you, you would say you're wildly optimistic. Can we take our foot off the gas there on nonviolent crimes? This is part of the project of the conservative movement is to look at what state power has done and ameliorate the negative effects of state power not to trust the state with more power and then hope we just win again and again and again and again. That is a recipe for continued and magnified negative polarization because I guarantee you our version of the public order, the public order that small-o Orthodox Christians would love to see is not the same vision of the public order that tens and tens of millions of Americans want to see. And when we enhance state power to impose that from the top, I promise you, you will not like it. Yeah, I would say, uh, uh, let me add a comment that will, may, will um, uh, relax the focus slightly uh, on these issues. Um, there has been a, a, what Wilmore Kendall used to call a, a liberal revolution in American public life and public policy that really began in the late 1950s, but of course accelerated in the 1960s and continues in many ways uh, to accelerate ever since. One one aspect of that liberal revolution was a revolution in the courts. And pornography used to be illegal. I mean, it was only in the 1960s that local laws restricting pornography began to fall before the Supreme Court and other federal courts Um, new understanding uh, of free speech. Um, And it's, you know, no, there are no, the revolution was not by legislatures that allowed pornography and obscenity to run 
uh, riot. That was a revolution in the courts from the top down. Why don't we try to reverse that revolution? Why not return to a more sensible public policy where the questions of obscenity and uh, pornography would be regulated more or less at the local level or at the state level um, by uh, ordinary citizens? Um, it seems to me that we, one of the things conservatism ought to be thinking about going forward is undoing much of the damage done by uh, hyperactive liberalism in the last 50 years. And that is, it's possible to do it if our own conservative judges don't uh, accept what has happened as irreversible and now the law of the land, which some of them are tempted to do, though not the best of them. David, do you want to respond to the last point? Or? Yeah, I'm happy to respond to that. So the, the, when you're looking at for traditional First Amendment doctrine, the, the actual words of the amendments protect the freedom of speech. The freedom of speech meant something. It wasn't just anything that anyone wanted to say. Um, for example, libel, never protected. Consumer fraud, never protected. Child pornography, never protected. True threats, never protected. Actual incitement to violence, not protected. These were not concluded within the freedom of speech, if you're a First Amendment originalist. And one of those categories was obscenity. And the interesting, there was a huge battle for a long time about the Supreme Court, because there was this broad understanding that obscenity was not protected. And there was a big battle at the Supreme Court to define it. What was it? And whether it resulted in this famous statement, uh, you know it when you see it, which is, that's when judge, you know judges have run amok, when essentially the standard is, is, I know it's unlawful when I see that it's unlawful, and there's no governing principle. Um, but there was a definition that I believe is the most, it's probably the best definition, and, and that would be um, a form of expression with no underlying artistic, literary, literary cultural ma merit that is designed specifically to appeal to the prurient interest. I do not think, and I do not think any originalist understanding of the Constitution would say that that is, that that is an incorrect understanding, constitutional understanding that, that uh, states and local governments and even the federal government, because the First Amendment originally applied only to the federal government, that they couldn't deal with that, uh, with that kind of expression. Um, that the problem that you have is I, I'm fully on board with the notion that absent, that category of obscenity should not be deemed First Amendment protected speech under originalist understanding of the Constitution. Our issue, and in fact, I would disagree a little bit that, that the problem of pornography has um, been exacerbated entirely by judges. Judges have also allowed municipalities to essentially chase porn shops out of the core areas of town that are heavily frequented by tourists and children. Times Square is totally different than it used to be. Downtown Nashville used to be a worse of cesspool than Times Nashville. Like, the belt buckle of the Bible belt, no. The Jerusalem of evangelical Christianity, because that's where the Southern Baptist Convention is. And it was full of peep shows in downtown in 1987 when I went to start a college. So the courts have allowed there to be regulation that's chased a lot of this off of uh, the public square. The and on, and, but the problem is now, we have a massive technical challenge on our hands. Just as a matter of technical challenge, how do you practically deal with that? Let me turn to that, because one, one of my students um, this week, uh, as we were preparing for our conversation, 
uh, said to me uh, two things, and this was to, def uh, she was uh, saying why she was attracted to Sorrell's position. She said, um, I like that he's willing to fight power with power. Uh, I like that he's willing to um, uh, combat the sexual revolution. Right? This was power with power to combat the sexual revolution, and that he realizes that corporations are a greater threat to liberty than the state. Uh, okay, can I address the corporations part first? Um, no, okay. Uh, no corporation is going to come at you with bayonets. No corporation is going to come at you with guns. Um, right now, Facebook is a very powerful corporation. I can open this phone, it's off, open the phone, delete the app, Facebook's out of my life. Um, they are powerful, absolutely. They are absolutely culturally powerful. We have long had powerful private cultural institutions in the United States. None of them rival the power of the state to regulate your life, as evidenced by the fact of the Hawley legislation. What's he going to do? He knows that if a court blesses it, he can crush any one of these corporations with the power of the state. The state has far more empirical power, period. It is a symbol of the success of our movement that we have begun to pare back in many areas the power of the state that we can actually worry about Facebook. But you know what? I want to I deal with one thing about this woke capitalism and woke corporatism and all of this. Look, guys, we are really defining courage down in our movement. We really are. You know, <laughs> Saurabh earlier said that Mario Lopez had to correct himself, that Drew Brees had to correct himself. They did not. They did not. See, that's the difference between the power, the power of the state would say to Drew Brees, if you don't apologize for, for focus on the family, to jail with you. The power of the state would say to Mario Lopez, if you don't apologize for your views on transgender uh, issues, to jail with you. That's the power of the state. What we have done is we have said this. We have said, I believe it is absolutely intolerable that I risk anything in the expression of my view. And I, I will tell you a story right after we finished the debate uh, at, at the Catholic University. They told me not to say CUA, too, so I'm trying to stick with the style guide. Um, when I finished the debate at Catholic, a young man came up to me, and he said, you have no idea how it is. You have no idea how hard it is to be a conservative on campus. And I said, oh, okay, well, where are you a conservative? At Yale. So right now I know he's already one of the most powerful and privileged people in the history of the planet. He is a Yale student, and he feels deeply oppressed. And I said, what's happening to you? Well, when I wear my MAGA hat, people will scream at me. And I'm waiting. And? And? Come on. This is the world that we are living in increasingly. I will have people come up to me, and I, I give this speech. I call it the courage cure to political correctness. And I will have someone come up to me. And I will say, you know, look, one of the things you need to do is speak with grace and truth and conviction. Do it. A lot of people did that to change this country. And I had a guy come up to me afterwards, and this sense of crisis and hysteria in this country is unbelievable. He came up to me afterwards. He literally said, I can't do that. It's East Germany at my company. I said, you mean they will take you in the middle of the night and dump your body in a ditch? I mean, we have to have a sense of proportion here, guys. If we're talking about the most important values in our life, the most important values in our life 
I'm not going to let the fact that I'm shamed on Twitter or shamed on social media deter me from saying this. And here's what happens. The hesitance to speak is self-reinforcing. As everyone's afraid, then it creates a, a mass sense, a mass sense that I cannot say anything. When the reality is you can and you should. I don't like that Drew Brees got dragged, but I tell you one thing, and I like Drew Brees. Drew Brees failed. Drew Brees failed. We have reciprocal responsibilities. The left, the illiberal left, has a responsibility not to be the illiberal left. The courageous right has a responsibility to be a courageous right. And if we are not going to uphold our end of the bargain, we're going to fail in this culture, and it will be a largely due to our own fault. You, uh, both the other panelists, to respond. Let me also, we're about to turn it over to questions, and we have a tradition, a student will ask the first question, so I'll make your way to the microphone if you uh, have a question. I want to address the courage point um, and the state point. Um, I think we can be frank about this and say that if it's the case that a lot of people feel compelled to shut up and not share gospel truth and the teachings of the Catholic Church, for example, it's because the mode of censorship that works through our private lives is effective. It's working. That's the bottom line. It's working in, in the sense that you, know, you can tell ordinary people to be courageous. But look, I, I work at a large uh, media company. I've been massively critical of the, uh, of the trans movement. I can go on uh, Tucker's show, and I have, and, and, and be critical of it. And, and Tucker and I said we, to each other, you and I are one of a very few people who can do that. I, I know this because we know all the cases of people who... Uh, you know, because they speak out, they'll face job prospects in this country that are negative. They'll face pressure on campus. Now, you can say be courageous, but as Christian leaders, we have to think the way St. Augustine did, which is what? In his commentary on Matthew, he says, when the flock is under threat, the, the bishop is to draw the threat away. So the bishop is to perhaps martyr himself, but we shouldn't expect the ordinary Christian to, to become a martyr. And that's never been the standard for, mar- for martyrdom, right? We, we should create instead conditions in which they feel safe to share the gospel with others. And that right now means confronting the power of woke capital. If it's effective, if people are shutting up, it's doing something because, you know, there's a deep strand of, uh, of conformism, sure. People are, a lot of people should be braver, sure, I agree. But we shouldn't, as Christian leaders who do have the privilege that we can speak out and not get into trouble, we should think like Augustine. Draw, you know, to try to draw the threat away from the flock and not leave them vulnerable, saying just be more courageous. The standard has never been for ordinary people to, to seek out martyrdom unless they absolutely have to. And I say I don't mean literal martyrdom, but we're defining these. You know, we're defining these. We're using words like crisis, like unprecedented, like martyrdom. These are words with a meaning. And when you use a word like martyrdom, it should mean martyrdom. What we actually mean is often severe social social sanction or peer pressure. We mean possibly a loss of a job. I mean, when I was in law school, I talked about this earlier with Professor Kessler. Uh, one of the f- tactics that some of the radical liberal leftists would use at, at Harvard Law School is when you spoke out in class, if, they really, if you really ticked them off, some of them would start to call the employer you were about to go work for and tell them that you're a racist and that you're a homophobe and that you had no business working there. They would put 
pictures of Federalist Society members, like all nine of us at the time. Now Harvard's Federalist Society is busting at the seams. They would take pictures of Federalist Society members and they would uh, literally, this was before cutting and pasting was a thing on a computer, they would take a picture of a uh, Federalist Society member, paste his face on gay porn and put it all over campus. And, you know, one of the things that I realized was it's going to, I don't even want to call it courage. I don't even want to call it courage because, you know, there's courage when people, uh, you know, I maybe I'm defining courage down myself when people risk their lives for a value. But we got to have a, a sense of bravery and pluck that says, I won't be silenced. And, you know, this does, this does mean incurring some risk. And, you know, one of the things in, in Sorab's point is he was talking about the elevation of this crisis in this country is a matter of war and enmity. I've never been to, you know, never seen a war that didn't require immense bravery from the individual foot soldiers. And if we're participating in a battle for the soul of this nation, each one of us is a participant. We cannot delegate that duty. So each one of us is under a moral obligation to be brave. I guess um, I do want to double down on crisis. Last time I, I, I said we should try to forestall the, the Colosseum, which does sound like, well, what a crazy thing to say. Who's built the Colosseum and what does it look like? Well, in a modern technological technocratic society, the Colosseum needn't look like an actual Colosseum in which there are lions. It could be just the destruction of people's livelihoods, uh, like happened to Jack Phillips and many others. Um, and, you know, to again, to maybe, again, have a, a, a biblical or early Christian frame, maybe we don't have a Colosseum right now. But every day at a Planned Parenthood right now, is a restaging of the massacre of the holy innocents on an insane scale. So that's a, that is a crisis, and we should be able to name things like that. Uh, well, just a, a small point. David knows this well. Um, on campuses, the problem is not just one that could be solved by courage, uh, although there are many aspects of it which could be solved by courage. But there are also deprivations of due process of law, in sexual assault proceedings and so forth, which uh, encouraged by the Obama administration and the, the, the infamous Dear Colleague letter, which that policy has now begun at least to be reversed. But um, their courage, although still and always necessary, is in, insufficient to solve that problem. Yeah. Well, and the methods of classic, the instruments of classical liberalism began to nuke those Title IX policies from orbit very quickly. Um, I believe that a, the Title IX policies have been ruled, Title IX inspired policies have been ruled unconstitutional or unlawful under common law concepts by judges from every single modern president that were appointed by every single modern president. So the methods, the instruments of classical liberalism absolutely nuked this and are still nuking this incredibly illiberal imposition on the Bill of Rights. Okay, let's get some questions. Uh, Patrick, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Thank you, all three of you, very much <clears throat> for coming to speak. Uh, my name is Patrick Amini. I'm a sophomore political science student. Uh, and my question is for Mr. Amari. Um, so is this classical distinction between public and private reason within political liberalism, where the idea is that public policy should be justified on the basis of interests that can appeal to people across different comprehensive doctrines of the good life. Now, your vision of a public sphere oriented towards the highest good, especially as it uses sort of the interp interpretive history of the founders, seems very bound up with a Christian theory of the good and of sin and of intrinsic disorder and that sort of thing. 
I'm curious if you think there's space for a version of this argument of more proper ordering in the public sphere that stays within the bounds of public reason as opposed to sort of falling into a religious base. Sure, and it's called natural law. And it's one that the founders, although they didn't always use the term or didn't use the language of, of, of classical natural law, they nevertheless were steeped in it. And it's a language that says that we, we, we can know the good, we can know it just by, by exercising our reason. Uh, and, and in some way, it's written into our hearts already in the form of a conscience. Now, with revelation, it comes the added assurance that we know, uh, uh, thou shalt not kill, and so forth. But at the at at level of conscience, we know that and we can, we can reason about it. And I think that's, a, that's a, a framing that I think the more classically steeped of the founders would have appreciated. Professor Kessler can, can, can comment on that as well. Um, it, so th that is not necessarily a purely Christian one, but it may require some recognition of classical theism. It may require some, some recognition of classical theism, which again wouldn't have been alien to a group of men, mostly men, who couldn't stop talking about God, the God of nature, uh, the better angels of our nature, if you go back to, the, to, to Lincoln. Um, and, and so I think we have to be able to go back to that kind of language and to say that the good is knowable by reason. Can I, can I follow up on Patrick's question, which is, um, is it right to see the distinction between Mr. French and Mr. Uh, Armari that, uh, David, you accept moral pluralism in matters of sex as simply a given, it's not going to go away, and Sarab, you're not willing to concede that? Is that sort of a fundamental difference between the two of you? I'll answer. I, I won't speak for David, but I will say that, um, that, that moral pluralism in, in matters of sexuality, if you believe that there is a moral law, uh, is, a, is a reality, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to order our politics, including in that area, to the good. We should strive, at least, because the good is knowable. I would say that I, I think the, that fundamental moral differences... Uh, are intrinsic to the nature of this nation, and the nature of those differences often changes. So in other words, pluralism is a fact of life of, from the foundation of this country. I think it's one of the reasons why I like Madison Thurlow's paper 10 so much. So what is it that, that divides us? We've never been this religious and ethnically homogenous country like, say, you know, most of the countries of, of Europe were. Um, what we've always been multi-ethnic, multi-faith, uh, we, and, and we're going to be multi-ethnic, multi-faith as long as this country exists. And we're going to be increasingly multi-ethnic. And I think the trend right now is we're going to be increasingly multi-faith. And so that's pluralism. Any given flashpoint within pluralism may change because societies change. But the fact of pluralism is a permanent part of American existence. And if we take any action to impair the ability of us to live together in a pluralistic environment, it's going to harm the fabric of this country. See, I mean, Tocqueville said, for all the differences you just mentioned, uh, Americans, whatever their faith or lack thereof, have the same morality. Uh, that's not true anymore. And that, that's a, there's a different sort of pluralism. Or mm -hmm. some would say there's a different sort of pluralism. And I see Sarab uh, resisting that and maybe, to put words in your mouth, but criticizing you for accepting it. Is this... I want to push on this disagreement because I think there, there's some, a real disagreement here. But Charles, you, maybe you want to get on this as well. I'm in the middle. <laughs> um, 
so look, it's the, uh, I think the way the founders would have, would have put it, and, and to some extent even Tocqueville would recognize this, is it's the consensus on morality that makes possible the diversity in religions and religious toleration. All the religions teach the same morality, um, you know, to uh, uh, life, liberty, uh, uh, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and if the, uh, their theological doctrines will differ wildly and did differ wildly at the time, but as long as they could agree on how we ought to regard our fellow citizens as human beings with rights, which um, no religious teaching authorizes us to uh, violate those rights or to deprive them of those rights. In fact, the right to practice uh, our religion and, and the exercise of our religion, this is one of, of uh, uh, Phil's specialties. Uh, he knows more about this than I do. But all of that really depended upon uh, the doctrine that we share the same rights. Uh, our religious freedom is an aspect of the morality we all agreed on. If... Um, in other words, the, the basis of pluralism is consensus, a certain kind of moral consensus. Um, if you don't have that consensus, then that's a, that's a problem for pluralism, I think, or, and peace even, just peace in society. And that is where Saurabh's criticism hits, I think, whether or not the common morality is being degraded. But I think that's where we, again, sort of smooth over some of these early American religious differences. I mean, some of these early American religious differences were that I can't even live around you people. Can't even, I, I can't, maybe I'm being expelled. Um, maybe I find the atmosphere in the, entire, in the community to be so intolerable I can't even live here. Um, and, and this mirrors, you know, if you look at Christian Europe uh, running up to the American founding, and you had a lot of people in Christian Europe who would believe things now in, as a common morality that we'd hope, yeah, there's large areas of agreement. I mean, look, if you go drive down Franklin Road in Nashville, Tennessee, you will pass a, a, a beautiful Catholic church. You will pass a, a not-so-great-looking Assembly of God church. You'll pass a... Uh, and all of them are, like, sort of based on the culture of the place, right? A beautiful Presbyterian church, but not as beautiful as the Catholic church because that'd be wrong... And, you know, you just go down the line and the biggest conflict that you have between these groups now is can you, you know, get out of church fast enough to beat the rush? And, and you know, rewind 300 years and the church bulletin would say, um, you know, at a Calvinist church, it would say, you know, potluck at 11, papist burning at noon. You know, I mean, this is, this is the level of disagreement that, and, and vicious anger that existed between these common strands of, that within, within small Orthodox Christianity that we have almost totally forgotten. We have almost totally forgotten it. And, and I think Tocqueville looked back and he did see elements of common American culture. We cannot have, you cannot have a commitment to pluralism without some elements of common American culture. If you, and including one, which would be if nobody's committed to pluralism, <laughs> you can't have a commitment to pluralism. So I'm not saying that you that there is there is uh, we are, we're not. I'm not saying that there's a situation where we can live when we have zero agreement. But I'm saying that we are going to live in a permanent condition in this nation where we have very substantial agree, a disagreement, very substantial disagreement, and we have to figure out how to do it. And the founders showed us the way. Rob and sure. Charles, very brief, and then we'll get sure. another question. Um, 
one quick point I wanted to make is that the, the best hope that we have is in the founders to the extent that they recognize that religion, true religion, maybe call it classic theism, is part of the temporal common good and therefore not only deserves protection but a, a special kind of encouragement. I want to call it the doctrine of religious liberty plus. If, as, as Adam says, and even Jefferson at various points says, that, that the religion that we have, uh, including in its diversity, uh, but broadly Judeo-Christian, is a source of virtue and so forth, it is part of the temporal common good, then the temporal power has some responsibility to recognize it, and we should resist doctrines about um, absolute religious neutrality. I know that this was a heated exchange in the last debate. I know that that's the litigation strategy that's so far brought us some safety, for, for example, for Christians in public spaces. But in the long term, the doctrine of religious neutrality, or viewpoint neutrality, in a way relegates religion to a kind of private bias. It says like, okay, you believe in like one God who is a creator to which you owe various duties, and you're, uh, you worship Molech, right, or Baal. And, you know, we can just kind of all, all share the same view. That, that's essentially the government uh, of the United States, including through its courts, uh, imposing a kind of moral relativism that I think is very uh, dangerous. And it also chips away at the fundament of our founding because our founding is based on this idea of the imago Dei. That's a specific vision of God. And if that vision of God has no more purchase on the public square, is no more special than the one like, of Satanists or Scientologists or whatever quackery, then we've, we've undermined our, our Constitution itself. Well, the, um, these issues go far back uh, in the country's history. So the, the, the first Republican uh, party, national party platform condemned, quote, those twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy, unquote. And the early Mormon church, um, whether it could be accepted as part of the pluralistic uh, world of American religion, uh, it faced a stumbling block from the, from the practice and to some extent, I guess, the doctrine of polygamy in the early church. Um, that, there was an actual Supreme Court decision that outlawed polygamy. Um, in the United States, and the church, the Mormon church, responded by uh, forbidding polygamy as well, and uh, evolved happily to the point where it is one of the fastest growing religions in the country uh, today, and essentially endorses the same morality as all the other religions. But if you do have religions that endorse what, you know, polygamy, or many worse things, of course, could be imagined, child sacrifice or whatever, um, you couldn't have religious pluralism that would succeed. You'd have religious warfare eventually. Can I, let me, let me raise a name real fast. Very quickly, James Blaine. Okay, some of you may not know who this guy is. He was an odious congressman and then senator from Maine who was an anti-Catholic bigot to the core. And so his vision of ordering public society to the public good was he proposed an amendment to the United States Constitution that prohibited any funding for what were called sectarian or any state aid for what were called sectarian schools. Now, in our modern lens, we, when we hear sectarian, we just think denomination, like a Christian school. But back then, that had a very specific meaning because under the ordering of the higher good in the, in the, in the years of uh, American... Of, years before the First Amendment was broadly applicable to the states, 
the ordering of the higher good meant that the public schools could be Protestant schools where they read from the King James Bible, they sang hymns, they prayed, and then the sectarian schools were parochial schools. And the public schools were going to be elevated and the, parochi- and the sectarian schools, sectarian meant Catholic, were going to be excluded. 37 states passed those amendments. 37 states ordering the society for what they thought was the higher good. It was odious anti-Catholic bigotry. We're still fighting about that now. There's a case before the Supreme Court of the United States, Espinoza, that says this trying to finally drive the wooden stake through the vampiric heart of anti-Catholic bigotry in this country. And that is what I am worried about. James Blaine, remember him. Remember when state power is granted to depart from, to put its thumb on the scale decisively on the side of one faith or the other, James Blaine. Let's, uh, we, and we'll try to get as many questions as we can, okay? I'll go ahead, Sam. Um, hello, my name is Sam Delmer. I'm a, or I'm a sophomore here at Notre Dame, and I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Um, Mr. French, I was inspired by your call to speak the truth gracefully, and so I have a question for you. Um, so uh, you mentioned the idea that we are in, in a challenge and not a crisis, and to support this idea, you cite the fact that we were facing harder challenges in the 80s and 90s. Um, although I agree with you that we, were, we are now in a better material position, um, I think right now the main crisis is a crisis in our national character. And so my question is, do you think that our society that degrades objective truth, religion, and virtue or objective truth, religion, virtue, not objective religion, uh, will create good leaders to face challenges in the future? In other words, has it been the government that has been pushing sexual liberation and the degradation of virtue, or has that been free individuals exercising their liberty? Yes. Uh, It's been both. I mean, part of the moral battle in the United States of America is a battle between people of very different competing moral and religious visions that have exercised their liberty and joined in the, on the marketplace of ideas, often with an assist, sometimes on one side, all too often on the other side from the government, um, advancing ideas and values that I find repugnant, that, that I, I find repugnant. Uh, this is a constant fight, a constant fight. Uh, it will never stop. You will always have a battle between uh, the, the, the truth and lies. You will always have a battle between justice and injustice. That's always going to exist. And the nature of that will change. Like how extreme it is in any given moment will change. How, uh, whether you're on top politically or on the bottom politically will change. One of the interesting things about this sense of crisis that we, I began seeing emerging, and especially with the, you know, the Flight 93 essay, is... I, both sides think they're losing badly right now. And you hear that from, if I talk to a conservative group and I say that, they're like, are you insane? How are you? The left wins everywhere. The left turns around and says, you know, by 2014, the Democratic Party, the instrument of our political power to acculturate this country, was at its 100-year low. A 100-year low. Can you imagine how panicked we'd feel if Republicans were at a 100-year low right now? That's, that's a real problem. And so what you have are two sides right now that are engaged in a battle of ideas that I want us to win, that I want us to win. But I also don't want to destroy the superstructure or impair the superstructure of this country 
for the sake of a short-sighted belief that political power is going to make us win this thing. It's not. If we're concerned about state power, as we should be, and as history teaches us we should be, we should be the most suspicious of granting the state more power over our moral lives. The history of the last 50 years is not good for that. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the, the reason both sides maybe think that they're both losing is because, bottom line, the substantive uh, conditions that we have are deserving both. Neither of them are accessing the common good as they, as they view it. Our politics is, in a way, has been depoliticized. We've talked about that here uh, by judges and others. Um, uh, we, we're... Uh, we're facing this kind of crisis of polarization, deaths of despair, and so forth. So, that, you know, I, I don't see how that in some ways is not a, an evidence for my side of the argument in the sense that if both sides feel like the regime is failing them, maybe we need to rethink, at least we as conservatives, need to rethink what our goal is. Is our goal to just maintain, uh, you know, our... Uh, stance on procedure, or is our goal to present a vision of the good and, 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 and bring more people to our side, rather than both sides thinking they're losing? Okay, we're going to go for about 10 more minutes, and we're going to try to get as many questions in as, as possible, okay? All right. Hi, I'm Peyton McCardwell. I'm a first-year law student at McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Uh, my question, I'm curious how all of your faiths kind of influence the way you interact in the political sphere and how you treat people, um, and if maybe you didn't hold that beliefs, if you still think your methods would still be consistent um, when you do hold those beliefs. I'll so start real faith quick. Faith in your, in, your, in your public witness. This will be fast. One of the reasons why I have confidence in the marketplace of ideas, one of the reasons why I have confidence that we can reorder society to a higher and better good through the power of our voice is I have seen with my own eyes, the renewing power of the gospel and the lives of human beings who have absolutely no hope, who have absolutely nowhere to go. And I've seen that power is to be far more transformative from the inside out than any other power that I have seen in the United States. Government, cultural, the power of the gospel is the most powerful force on earth. And the, the idea that we would retreat on key liberties that allow us to share the most powerful force on earth, to me is one of the more self-destructive and harmful ideas that we could put forth in the public square. Um, <clears throat> I was raised uh, Baptist and remain temperamentally a Baptist at least. Um, and so w w this is uh, uh, a religion deeply suspicious of state power. Uh, uh, and I think as a, as a reading of Christianity, it is a very helpful uh, reminder of the themes that, uh, that actually would unite uh, David and Sorab here. Um, it, if, there, uh, if there isn't a reasonable morality that all the religions can reasonably agree on, uh, then we are in a very deep, um, uh, and the word to use would be, I think, crisis, um, in American life and in American politics. Um, I think the, the, um, the, the problem in America is really about reason more than it is about revelation. It's about what reason can know. 
and whether we can know enough about the moral good to require everyone in, some, in different ways, in different situations, to live up to it. Uh, and I think that's why in an age when postmodernism has swept the universities, um, postmodernism stands or falls by the notion that reason can't tell us anything about what is good and bad, right and wrong. The kind of politics you get once that notion has been widely disseminated out of the universities into the ruling class in, uh, in American politics and even beyond the ruling class into the ruled, as it were, um, is a politics of bitter, emotional, passionate, vitriolic irrationality. And there are signs that we're heading in that direction. So uh, I guess I converted to Roman Catholicism in December 2016, and I would say it's had a profound effect on how I look on the world. I mean, first of all, I've said this, you know, um, as, a, as a political actor, um, I'll say it again, my primary commitment, um, which is a perfectly reasonable in an American context or any context, is the liberty of the church. Um, and in that sense, I'm grateful again to what David has done for the liberty of the church in the, in the courtroom. Um, but it's also uh, the Catholic faith, including its vast and rich social teaching, has made me rethink some aspects of, of American conservatism. Um, I'm not saying what the fix to our health care, for example, problem is. But I no longer just say, well, it is what it is, and our system is very expensive and has costs of which, uh, you know, X number of people don't have insurance. Or if, you know, in my case, this has happened to me, and, I, and I, as, again, as a Roman Catholic, I try to think, what would, it ha- what would it be like if it happened to someone else? My son got uh, the human metanumavirus a while ago. This was like a few months ago. It's not, I mean, it can be very deadly. It just requires a night of hospitalization. Um, we got the bill. It was all together just for one night of hospitalization. Just monitoring him was $20,000, of which, even though I work for a large corporation with the platinum insurance plan, I was responsible for $3,700 of that. Of that. Now, my wife and I can handle that. She also works for a large company. I'll give an extra talk somewhere, or I'll write an extra magazine article. But I can't imagine what that's like for working-class Americans and for poorer Americans. And so that's in the sense that I'm trying to think, how do we as conservatives, doesn't mean necessarily the answer is always the state, but there has to be a degree of, of protection for people. There's, we, we, people. there's far too much uncertainty in American life, and that's why I think a lot of Americans don't take great risks. They don't make the great sacrifices that, uh, that they should, like family formation and having children, because of this pervasive sense of uncertainty. As for how I conduct myself in the public sphere, look, I, I, the, the conversion has not made me any less combative, um, but it has brought me the sacrament of confession. Let's get, <laughs> let's get one, one, one more. Last question here. Hi, my name is Jorge Plaza. I'm a junior studying philosophy and economics. And first, I would like to thank the speakers for coming and taking the time to come and speak. Into the microphone, please. Um, my question is, so after World War II, Germany banned the Nazi party as an evil ideology that led a prosperous nation to its destruction. Now, I'm from Venezuela, uh, where an evil ideology has led a prospering country to its demise, right? So is it at all prudent or effective to, for the state to ban certain ideas from the public square? 
the American state? No. Is that a short enough answer? <laughs> we, we don't have the same history or culture of other nations and have to respond accordingly. I would say, you know, David has rightly called for a total war on the alt-right. And I'm, I'm with him on that, on the, the notion of, you know, uh, uh, white Americans fearing that they're being replaced so they should build a white republic and so forth. Now, uh, obviously, we have our First Amendment, but if it, if it has any kind of violent extremist component, that's where we can fight. If it has any incitement component, that's where we can fight. Um, and I would say, you know, I don't want to bring the library thing again, but I have to ask. We almost made it. <laughs> All right, let's stay out of it. Let's stay, let's stay out of it. Let's stay out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. So I would say, I would say look, under our, 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 our regime, we can't do that. Um, Germany is different conditions. Venezuela is different conditions. But we can, we can wage ideological warfare, and we have, against communism, against you know, fascism and other kinds of totalitarianism. There are means for the, for the American state to do that. Well, it, uh, uh, I wouldn't, um, it, it depends upon the circumstances. Um, after the Civil War, um, people who had uh, fought on behalf of the Confederacy were required to take a loath of, uh, an oath of loyalty uh, to the Constitution uh, and to the Union before they, their political rights were restored to them. Um, that was a very exceptional circumstance and a very exceptional remedy, but I think uh, you know, it's possible even in the United States for such remedies to be necessary. Yes. Please join me in thanking our, our panelists today.